Welcome to Trade for Peace, brought to you by the WTO's Trade for Peace program. I am Axel Addy, former chief negotiator of Liberia's accession to the WTO and founding member of the Trade for Peace program. Trade for Peace is a 30-minute podcast in conversation with Trade for Peace champions, the global policymakers, entrepreneurs, and innovators committed to promoting trade as a key ingredient for lasting peace. Join us in our bi-monthly podcast as we discuss how trade is contributing to sustainable peace in fragile and conflict-affected countries. Welcome to Trade for Peace. In today's special anniversary episode of Trade for Peace, we are honored to have with us Nobel Peace Laureate Mrs. Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, the former president of Liberia and the first female to have been elected in Africa. Famously known as Africa's Iron Lady, Madam served as president of the Republic of Liberia from 2006 to 2018. She was elected two years after 14 years of civil conflict. During her two terms as president, she shaped Liberia in an unprecedented way, focusing on reconciliation and economic reconstruction, which led to remarkable achievements, including 16 billion FDI inflows, 4.6 billion external debt relief, the lifting of UN trade sanctions, and Liberia's historic accession to the WTO. She is also recognized as a global leader for women's empowerment, which earned her the prestigious Nobel Prize for Peace in 2011. Her many honors include the Mo Ibrahim Prize for Achievement in African Leadership and the U.S. Presidential Medal of Freedom. She was also named as one of Forbes' 100 Most Powerful Women in the World. It was a privilege to have worked under her leadership from 2013 to 2018 as the Minister of Commerce and Industry and Chief Negotiator of Liberia's accession to the WTO. Madam President, it is an honor to have you on this special edition commemorating Liberia's five-year anniversary as a member of the WTO. Welcome to Trade for Peace. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today on Trade for Peace, Madam President. Let us start with a question I often ask all of our guests. What does trade for peace mean to you? You know, I'll start off by saying peace is the propellant for trade. With that in mind, we knew in Liberia that our first action was to reactivate Liberia's traditional exports of iron ore and rubber. And also we had to attract additional investment. We did so in the area of oil palm, thereby producing diversification in our investment and also diversification in our partnership because we were able to attract private capital from countries in Asia. And we know that all of this had one primary objective, creating jobs for Liberians. We knew also that if we were going to implement our programs, we needed to increase the level of government revenue. At that time, about 100 million where we were, but we were able to move it to half a billion. And for the first time in decades, we could say with comfort that government employees, civil servants, their salaries increased and their salaries were paid for regularly and on time for the 12 consecutive years of our leadership. We took additional actions 
securing funding to restore our infrastructure, roads, ports, energy. By doing this, we could see more efficiency in transport, which had benefits for trade within our countries and across our borders. We were also able to sign a Millennium Challenge Count Compact that provided Liberia 200 million, which was used to rehabilitate our destroyed Mount Coffee Hydro Dam. By so doing, the process of bringing electricity denied for a couple of decades could be secured in the country. And we also didn't stop there talking infrastructure. We secured investment to rehabilitate the free port of Monrovia, the gateway to commerce, to trade, and also secured funding to start the construction of a new terminal at our Rawas International Airport. So we secured our peace by ensuring that we had the means whereby trade uh, would enable our people to get jobs, would enable them to get the kinds of services that every nation has to provide to its people. Thank you, Madam. Now, you were elected president of Liberia only two years after 14 years of civil conflict that led to complete devastation of the country and its economy. All pre-war infrastructure was destroyed and the country had accumulated an enormous national debt. When you got elected, you became a figure of hope for Liberia. Can you tell us what your priorities were at that time and what principles were guiding the Liberia post-conflict transformation process? The first absolute thing that was necessary was to protect the fragile peace that had been negotiated through the Accra Peace Accord. And as you mentioned, the issue of debt, we found Liberia with a staggering debt of unserviced loans for many years. That was close to $4 billion U.S. dollars. So we had to ensure that we could find a means to bring relief to our country and create the fiscal space that was necessary. And so we adopted the heavily indebted poor country process to start the process of debt relief. And with that, it, it enabled us to be able to build our own uh, domestic revenue generating institutions once we have the fiscal space to do so. We also reactivated our productive sectors, you know, going beyond the traditional exports of iron and rubber. We wanted to go back to, to coffee, and cocoa, things that also were part of Liberia's historical export possibilities. By doing that, you know, we could scale up the exports going beyond iron ore and rubber. That also meant that we would broaden the potential and opportunities to get more Liberians back to work, to increase their purchasing power at Increasing their purchasing power also meant expanded trade. And so peace, trade, and all of those were all related to the process of trying to reconstruct a country, reactivate economic growth. Thank you, Madam. Now, I would like us to turn to policy advice for conflict-affected states. 
Now, in your speech accepting the Nobel Prize for Peace, you said, and I quote, Liberia continued progress depends on policies and programs that invest in people and strengthen democratic institutions while remaining grounded in the rule of law. In your view, based on Liberia's experience, how can conflict-affected countries concretely put in place policies that foster lasting peace? Well, let me first say, I accepted the Nobel Peace Prize on behalf of Liberian women, African women, women of the world who stood for the values I stood for to be able to challenge male domination. So I want to start on that point. But also to consolidate that peace, one needs to develop a partnership with the development community and to come up with programs that invest in people, building their capacities in their respective areas. For our civil servants, we knew that we were facing those who had been denied good quality education for a long time. So we had to come up with a means whereby we would train them at home, but also find a means to give them opportunities to get additional training, specialized training, through support for scholarships abroad. I established the President's Young Professional Program, the means by which we could repatriate Liberians who had the abilities to come and join us in a process of nation building, bringing them home where they could work under the mentorship of some of those who were at higher level, who create the conditions whereby all of those could now initiate reforms that would help Liberia to improve the business climate. And in that process, we were able to ensure that we got the Millennium Challenge Corporations Compact in itself proving that what we did to be able to build capacity, domestic institutions of capacity, would itself become a testament to the impact of the reforms we put in place in order to make sure of sustainable uh, success in this regard. We were active in rebuilding institutions as the key to successful implementation of laws and policies. That meant that we should be able to go beyond just the, the technical capacity, but provide the opportunities where our democratic institutions, grounded by our legal system for the rule of law, would be able to settle disagreements in such a manner that there would be no conflict. Those disagreements would be settled in a court of law. And it, this has lasted until today. Today, I think we went too far because every issue you know, that represents a disagreement becomes a source of legal action. And our courts have failed able to resolve those things. That's evidence of progress in, in ensuring that you've 
solve the problem of conflicts as a means to resolve differences, but certainly, yeah, I guess Liberia today is safer because of all of that. Thank you, madam. Now, speaking of women, throughout your career, you have been known as an avid leader for women empowerment. As you rightfully said, uh, you earned a Nobel Peace Prize for your work in bringing women into the peacekeeping process. Why do you believe it is so important to ensure women's participation in the peacekeeping processes? Well, let me once again use the example of Liberia. Even though women were the victims, women were the ones affected most by our conflict, it was the women who led the peace processes. It was the women who were able to challenge the status quo that started the processes that got us to Accra and earned us the Accra Peace Accord. And so because women are on the front line of conflict, they also should be on the front line of peace. The recognition of women's role, their participation, their leadership in peace building will ensure continued peace because they bring to that process the kinds of empathy, coordination, compassion, compromises that are sometimes needed. Uh, I believe this is today being recognized, even the United Nations is talking about putting many more women in peacekeeping missions to ensure that they bring this dimension to the process, because that's how you sustain the peace. If the peace is negotiated properly to the acceptance of all the parties, peace then will last. Women are the key. Now, I would like us to talk about your new project, what you've been up to lately. First, congratulations on the launch of the Ellen Johnson's Relief Center for Women and Development, the EJS Center. I know you have graduated your first cohort of African women in leadership roles and are now working with your second cohort. Can you tell us a little bit more about your dream for the center and the objectives driving the center to develop and empower women across the continent? The Ellen Johnson Sirleaf Presidential Center for Women in Development, EJS Center, as we call it simply, aims to amplify the voice of women and girls in all spheres of life by increasing the representation of women in public service leadership roles in Africa. We also, as a part of our operational plan, have a unique blend of programming, advocacy, archival research, data collection, museum exhibitions, so that through these means, the center can become an institution dedicated to advancing and sustaining women's political, entrepreneur, and social development on the continent. We hope that the example of my life and the life of other outstanding women in Africa can be carried by the center as a motivating force to all the women out there who are seeking ascendancy to higher levels of leadership roles in public service. Thank you, Madam, for continuing your drive to foster social change in Africa through the EJS Center.
You are listening to Trade for Peace, brought to you by the WTO's Trade for Peace program. We will be right back after a short break. Welcome back to Trade for Peace. We are honored to have as our special guest, Nobel laureate Mrs. Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, former president of Liberia and the first woman to be elected president in Africa. Now, I would like us to talk a little bit about branding Liberia post-conflict. As someone who was privileged to have worked under your leadership as Minister of Commerce and Industry, I am a first-hand witness of your determination and drive to change the image of Liberia from a post-conflict country to a country on its way to recovery and transformation committed to democratic values. In your opinion, how does the perception of a country affect its developmental goals? And in what ways can conflict-affected countries manage their image and identity? What advice uh, do you have for leaders in conflict-affected countries? Um, in the first instance, one has to have leadership by example. When you set the goals, uh, you also must let everybody know that you prepared to take the action that will enable you to achieve the goals. Also, to get the right perception of a country and its implementation of its goal. Uh, needs a certain level of engagement with the international community through membership, through participation in regional and multilateral organizations. You know, Liberia was very active as a member of ECOWAS, African Union, United Nations. We reactivated our good relationship with the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, the African Development Bank. And so we sought to make sure that they understood what our development agenda was and they had the confidence that working together with us, we would achieve those goals. We made a commitment to the reform that we had so that people could measure our commitments in what we said we would do. That those with whom we had a relationship had the means whereby to monitor us. You know, I, I recall one example of the World Bank doing business report where we were at the bottom when we started, but by putting in those reforms, our performance was regularly registered. And by that means, the investor had the details on the changes that were being implemented. They then saw the diligence with which we promoted those reforms and implement them, uh, that our reform agenda implementation was on track. And that's how we're able to get into higher levels on the uh, World Bank Business Development Reports. Uh, and an important part of all of this, of course, is to make sure that you carry your citizens with you, uh, involving them in public dialogue so that uh, they understood and owned policy formulation and implementation, what we did, that they were part of the process. Uh, when we launched our development plan, the Agenda for Transformation, 
It was based on an extensive, very robust consultative process with stakeholders across the country. So in our implementation, they could see themselves. They could feel ownership. They could feel a part of it. And so the success we had was assessed not only from our leadership, but from our citizens having the confidence in that leadership and confidence in their own ability and their own rights to be an equal partner in that entire process. Thank you, Madam. Now, speaking of reforms, as you know, the WTO accession of Liberia also served as a unique rebranding tool. And when I was appointed Minister of Commerce and Industry, I was tasked with addressing issues related to economic diversification and improving the business climate. Boosting trade and undertaking trade reforms was identified as a rebuilding and rebranding tool for Liberia. In your view, what do you see as the role of the WTO accession process of Liberia in Liberia's economic transformation journey? An important element, a component to implementing the reforms, the primary objective was to unlock new investment opportunities, enabling us to diversify the economy from the traditional means of the extractive industry, the rubber sector, uh, to move beyond that, to identify new things that could be done to expand the economy. I mentioned coffee and cocoa, but we went, we went beyond that, introducing new things that were not part of our traditional world, like cashew nuts and citrus fruits just doing things that expanded our ability. Liberia is a small country, its um, markets are small, but starting the effort as a part of the reform sets the pace for being able to attract investment, to attract new partnerships, to attract private capital, something that was solely needing in the country. Our commitment to the laws and reforms and all that we did sent a big signal to investors. They could see that we were making every effort to improve the business climate. You know, attitudes, uh, ensuring that our people felt partnership with new investors. It's not all easy. And there are lots of bumps in that road when you're trying not only to build an, a domestic entrepreneur environment, but at the same time, attract a lot of private capital, you know, to a very small economy with low purchasing power. But I think the way we did it and the commitment we demonstrated in doing it made us a bit successful. That's how we're able to bring in 16 billion US dollar investment. Now, of course, as things went on, not all of that investment ever hit the ground, you know, because things changed like Ebola, you know, there were externalities that we were not able to completely, but at least we were able to do the attraction and a well enough percentage of that is the one that got into what we were able to achieve to be able to grow the economy to the point where by the time we reach 
the end of 2013, we were close to 9%. It was 8.7, you know, average annual over the period, despite our difficulties. And so reforms that lead to investment, investment that lead to trade, you know, is how you catalyze a country in its development agenda. An important point, of course, all of this, because like I say, small country with small entrepreneurs, uh, we would have to, through these reforms, ensure that we improve market access for small businesses so that they could be able to access the global value chains. That's a work in progress. We're still trying to see because our SME sector still is one of the most vibrant and the ones that can produce those jobs. And until we can improve their access to markets, they will always remain constrained in our effort to scale them to the place where purchasing powers increase. But uh, the progress we made, I keep seeing for all of these, they're all work in progress. Thank you, madam. Now, as you know, the W2 accession process is a complex uh, process made even more difficult for conflict-affected countries facing many challenges. This is because the process of negotiating enforceable commitments, which require the development and implementation of legal, economic, and policy frameworks that are compliant with WTO rules. In my view, the most important factor that contributed to Liberia's success at acceding to the WTO was your determination and leadership and the leadership at the highest level across government to see the accession conclude in 2016. Although Liberia had applied in 2008, the process has stalled. And when I was appointed minister in 2013, you gave me a clear mandate to conclude the accession by the end of 2015. What made you want to prioritize the WTO accession process? And what advice do you have for other conflict-affected countries in the process of acceding to the WTO? By accession, we were able to work with partners in the WTO to help us to identify reforms that were necessary to be competitive in a global marketplace. Today, as we look back at some of what we did, and we see that Africa is in the process now of implementing the Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement, that accession process that we installed now provides the opportunity to facilitate integration regionally, makes it easier for our small marketeers to trade across borders, to be able to benefit from the kinds of exchanges that will take place, you know, with their peers in other countries. The connection through those business exchanges is a key to protecting the peace in our fragile countries. As long as our people know they have an opportunity to grow, to trade, to earn, you can be assured that they will not think about conflict. They're looking for the means where they can have a better life, you know, and our accession to the W provides those opportunities that help them to achieve uh, those goals. The technical support uh, that accompanied that process is very important. 
not only for the process, but also for building the capacity of the trade-related institutions. I'm pleased that at the end of my administration, the Customs Authority in Liberia is taking electronic payments for services. We just hope that this, you know, carries on because it's an effective means of being able to promote trade for peace. Absolutely, madam. And much of that is to your leadership in being an inspiration to many young members of government who are being inspired to make sure that we implement those reforms. Now, madam, I would like us to turn a little bit to the current pandemic. As you know, at the height of the WTO accession negotiations for Liberia, we found ourselves amidst the Ebola health crisis. The outbreak further dampened economic activities and exposed the institutional weaknesses of the country. A similar experience is now being lived through on a wider scale due to the COVID-19 pandemic. The situation is worsening on the continent as many countries are now experiencing a third wave while facing vaccine shortages. Based on your experience leading Liberia through the Ebola crisis, do you have any advice for leaders looking for ways out of the pandemic? The first thing to stop the pandemic is leadership. We also know, based upon a process of which I've been involved, and given the kinds of exposure in inequities and injustices brought about by this pandemic, uh, that we have to change the system, the international system, the global architecture needs to be changed. And that will call for building national institutions. But I come back to the first sort of thing that leaders have to accept the example. If you want to stop the pandemic, they have to encourage their officials and members to work for implementing the national response. They have to rally their citizens and encourage them to comply with the health protocols. And there's nothing better than ensuring a coordinated approach with your development partners so that they bring in the necessary support that may be needed. And if I make one final word, since uh, we're talking about the pandemic, that final word is based on my, uh, our country's Ebola experience, is that leaders must recognize the importance, the role in leadership of community health workers who are the ones who take the risk on the front line. Their support, training, and compensation is vital to achieving your goals of being able to address not only the current pandemic, but any of the other types of disabilities that one face. Well, thank you, Madam. Thank you for this inspiring and great conversation. Now, let me end the podcast with our usual question we ask all of our guests. In just one word, what does trade for peace mean to you and why? I'll say it in one line. Empowering women empowers the nation. Thank you, Madam President. Madam, as always, it has been an honor and a privilege to have you as our special guest on Trade for Peace. 
your courage and determination to promote freedom, peace, justice, and women empowerment continues to inspire many, especially the women and girls in Liberia, Africa, and around the world. To our listeners, thank you for joining us today on the special edition of Trade for Peace, commemorating Liberia's five-year anniversary as a member of the WTO. We have been in conversation with Nobel Peace Laureate, Mrs. Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, former president of Liberia and the first woman to be elected president in Africa. Thank you for tuning in to Trade for Peace. I'm your host, Axel Addy. You have been listening to Trade for Peace, brought to you by the WTO's Trade for Peace program. Subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. For more episodes, visit us at www.tradeforpeace.podbean.com. Be sure to tune in every other week for new episodes. Thanks for listening to Trade for Peace.